G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word to us that we can read today. You speak to us by your spirit and in your word, even today. And Lord God, what a privilege it is uh, to have the word of God read to us, that we can hear it in our ears, uh, proclaimed, that we can have it uh, drummed in. Lord God, be at work amongst us, we pray, that these might not be just sounds that we hear, uh, but indeed an encounter with the living God himself. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Ken Sandy, you might have heard me talk about him before. I'm a bit of a fan of his book, The Peacemaker. Ken Sandy, he tells the story of an absolute clangor from his younger days when he was uh, an enthusiastic law student back in the day. Uh, He was at church every week, even back then, and he used to try really hard to get his friends to come along with him. So he'd always be inviting them along. Anyway, Cindy, one of his colleagues, Cindy, Uh, finally said yes. But unfortunately, it wasn't a good week when she came along. Here it is. Here's the story from Sandy. Ken Sandy. I couldn't believe my pastor was going to air his dirty laundry from the pulpit. How can he do this, I thought. I've finally gotten Cindy to come to church. This will not impress her. Cindy was a secretary at the law firm where I was working as an intern during law school. I'd been inviting her to church for nearly three months, hoping that she would come to know Christ through the teaching and fellowship there. But as soon as we took our seats, my plans began to fall apart. Pastor Woods stepped up to the pulpit and said, before we begin our worship today, there's some unfinished business that we need to deal with. Would Kent please come up here. Not Ken, okay, Kent. Oh no, I groaned to myself as I remembered last week's adult Sunday school class. Pastor Woods and Kent, one of our elders, had gotten into an intense debate. They both resorted to sarcasm, which left the class sitting in this awkward silence. Apparently, Pastor Woods had been stewing over it all week and now he was going to admonish Kent in front of the whole church. Those aren't our proudest moments, are they, with conflict? When Peter came to Antioch, writes the Apostle Paul, chapter 2, verse 11, that's the passage, that's our text, that's where we pick it up from today. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. That's one thing, isn't it, when two men face off in public? It's usually pretty ugly. It's another thing when two leaders face off in public, but it's quite another thing again when two, not just leaders, but two men who are among the tiny, tiny group who were commissioned by Jesus himself to take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world, when they face off, I mean, that's only happened once in history as far as we know, and this is it. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Does it make you cringe a bit when you read that sentence? 
You know, would you wish that Cindy had come along to another week, any other week, rather than the week that we're opening up this passage of Scripture? Please. So today, Paul clashes with Peter over the way that conduct contradicts convictions or behaviour belies beliefs. Paul clashes with Peter over the way that conduct contradicts convictions. We actually see very little of the conflict itself uh, in you know, what, they, what they said, how they carried themselves. Perhaps they carried themselves as absolute gentlemen. Uh, we don't know. But we do hear an awful lot of the backstory of this conflict, an awful lot of the whys and wherefores, and that's where I think the gold is for us. I'd like to probe this kind of prickly passage in three areas. Firstly, what is the guts of their argument? What is the guts of their argument? Why the clash at all? What's the guts of it? Secondly, how does it connect to the gospel? So the guts, then the gospel. What makes it a gospel clash? Why is it worthy of two apostles of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ going toe to toe over this one? So the guts, the gospel, and thirdly, how does it grip us? How should it grip us? This arcane Argument, a once in history event. What has it got to do with us? How should it grip us 21st century Christians today? This prickly little passage, this fascinating little passage, perhaps a passage that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Shall we dive in? So, first of all, let's get to the guts of the issue. What on earth is the issue before us? So, to begin with, may I ask you to kind of put your detective hat on, okay? Your curiosity, your investigative kind of self, put that detective hat on, because here's the case that I want you to probe with me. Is there any motive, other than gospel, is there any motive for Paul to take on Peter face-to-face in this dramatic episode? Could this just be mudslinging? Could this just be a personality clash? Could it be a turf war? Has Peter trodden on Paul's toes and he's got hurt feelings and so he lashes out? Galatians already has put Peter and Paul, and that's why I asked Marion to read it, has put Peter and Paul in the same room a number of times already and I want us to probe their relationship. You'll remember from last week that Paul was at great pains to say that his gospel, his gospel was exactly the same as Peter's gospel. There's only one gospel, there's one and only. Paul's the same as Peter's, both by revelation from the Lord Jesus. Take a look with me there at chapter 1, verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached, it isn't something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, writes the Apostle Paul, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul didn't get it from Peter or anyone else for that matter, only by Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 15. We're just trying to probe their relationship here. What is it between Paul and Peter? Verse 15, but when God, who set me apart from birth, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I didn't consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, in other words, to where Peter and the other apostles were, to see those who were apostles before I was. I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Do you see it there? Paul didn't go to Peter. He didn't get his gospel from Peter. It's the one gospel came by revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't get it from Peter, but they finally do meet. Verse 18, have a look there. 
Then after three years, after three years of this, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. 15 days under the same roof. Are we getting a picture of their relationship now? 15 days. That's actually quite a long time, isn't it? Just the other week, I stayed for one night uh, with a delightful couple while I was staying at, uh, stu- uh, uh, attending the conference at the Reformed Theological College. I felt that I got to know them pretty well. We got along well, enjoyed their company. I can't imagine doing it for 15 days if I didn't get along with them well. 15 days, Paul and Peter under the same roof. Chapter 2, verse 1, skip down there. 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. Skip down to verse 6. So this is in this second visit to Jerusalem now, verse 6. As for those who seem to be important, uh, sorry, verse 7 is where I wanted to go. Uh, On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter, as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All right, we've just got a detective hat on, we're just piecing together the relationship there. Here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing friends. I'm hearing colleagues. I'm hearing brother. I can see Jesus has given you a task. You go for it just as I've got a task to go for it. We're brothers in this. We're partners in this. We're colleagues in this. We're very much on the same page. I'm not hearing turf war. I'm not hearing a personality clash. I'm hearing we're in this together. Let's go for it. And all that makes verse 11 so very weird, doesn't it? It makes verse 11 stick out like a sore thumb. What is going on here? Verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Now, what is this deplorable wrongness that Peter's carrying on with? What is it that he's done? Verse 12, uh, I just want us to get to the guts of what, uh, what Peter is doing, never mind Paul's beef with it at the moment. What is the guts of what Peter is doing? Verse 12, before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Fact number one, Peter had been eating with whoever. Am I right? Is that what those verses are saying? So what is the guts of Paul's dispute here? Well, Peter had been eating with whomever. That's verse 12, which was weird for a Jew, actually. Not for a Christian Jew, but it was weird for a Jew. And it seems that Peter had absolutely no problem with eating with these non-Jews. Okay, that's how it had been. And by eating here, perhaps he's talking about the Lord's Supper, but maybe we're just talking about any kind of eating, meals. 
which, which carried a whole lot more weight than they do for us today. It says, I'm with you. You're one of us. You're acceptable. I love you. We are together. Peter had been eating with anyone. Verse 2, uh, sorry, fact 2, that all changed though, didn't it? And that's there in verse 13. That all changed when some folks arrived from who? From James. Now, I was scratching my head here because how could that possibly, how could that change the game for Peter? What on earth would come from James? Now, let's assume that these men came with James's blessing rather than, you know, they just happened to come from James. Let's assume that they brought a message, maybe, to, the, to Peter from James. But even so, how on earth would that change the game so that Peter would draw back from eating with these non-Jews? Ronald Fung Uh, He proposes this possible reconstruction. It's just a hypothesis. We don't really know. You've got the same detail that he does. But it sounds plausible, and I wanted to share it with you. Here's Fung. He says, Perhaps the message coming from James, perhaps it was addressed to Peter personally, to the effect that news of his free table fellowship with Gentiles in Antioch was being exploited by unsympathetic scribes and Pharisees to the detriment of the Christian cause in Judea. But the actual term used, that he, Peter, was afraid, did you see it there in verse 12? Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The actual term there, that he was afraid, suggests a stronger emotional reaction. It makes it plausible that there was more to the message from James. If that message had also appealed to Peter's concern for the physical safety of the Jewish Christian churches in Judea, where Jerusalem is, which were already in considerable jeopardy from non-Christian Jews. Well, this would provide further explanation for Peter's behaviour. Now, look, there's a lot of ifs in that, right? But I'm just trying to figure out, how can this possibly be? Why would Peter withdraw from eating with these non-Jewish Christians? Well, here is a plausible explanation if Peter's company at dinner proved handy arsenal for people who wanted to stir up violence against Christians down in Jerusalem, yeah, okay, I can see how that might work. I can see why he might withdraw from having dinner with them or perhaps sharing the Lord's Supper with them. But for Paul, what may, may ease the load for the church in Judea back home It stood to sink the gospel here in Antioch. You've got to see that, Peter. Do you see? So we've moved now from the guts of what Peter was doing to seeing that the gospel is on the line. The gospel. Have a look with me at verse 13 now. The other Jews joined him, joined Peter in his hypocrisy so that by their their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Verse 14. When I saw that they weren't acting in line with the truth of the gospel... I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, I wonder if you're a bit like me with this passage. Um, So much of Galatians so far has been all about Paul's travel plans. You know what I mean? And I love a good story. I love hearing about he went here and he went there and he saw those people. And it's fascinating. You probably get from my preaching that I like a good story. 
But now we get into this, you live like a Jew, but no, you live like a Gentile and you're a Jew, and then we're about to get into justification by faith and not by works and not works of the law and all this kind of stuff. I feel like at this verse, at verse 14 of Galatians chapter 2, I'm standing at the start of a maze. And I know that I'm going to get lost in there. And I don't know how long it's going to take for me to find my way out. I know that I will find my way out eventually, but it may take a very long time. I might half starve to... You know what I mean? Like, I'm standing at the start of this puzzle that I know is going to be tricky and complicated. I know I'm going to uh, get lost in. Can you relate to what I mean? Brothers and sisters, I just want to say, if that's you, if you can relate to that, uh, when Marion got to the Bible, this part of the Bible reading before, fear not. The entire book of Galatians is trying to help us Christians put together the gospel of the Lord Jesus with the Old Testament law. How do we relate those two? How do we hold those two together? In what ways should they be held together? In what ways shouldn't they be? I'm just saying that we've got a few weeks between now and the end of Galatians to find our way out of the maze. So fear not, if we manage to unravel just a little bit this week, then that'll be a good week, I reckon. That'll be a good week if we just manage to unravel a little bit. We don't need to solve the whole maze, the whole puzzle today. And if you've ever struggled with questions like this, questions like, well, you've got God and he's God and he's always been God. So if God says a law and that law reflects like, you know, who he is, then that should be a permanent thing, shouldn't it? Shouldn't the law always be binding on all people for all time? then how can you say that I'm off the hook? If you've ever struggled with that, or if you've ever struggled with saying, but no, the Bible says so clearly, I'm free from the law, then what's with the Ten Commandments? Aren't I supposed to be bound by those anyway? If you've had those sorts of questions, Galatians is the book for you, it's just going to take us a few weeks. So what can we unravel for today? What's before us here in verse 14 and following? Well, there's a couple of things when it comes to the Gospel. Firstly, Paul knows that he and Peter agree on the gospel. Is that clear? Did you see that in the verses so far? Paul knows that he and Peter, they are agreed on the gospel. That is just bedrock for him. Peter hasn't forgotten the gospel or fudged it. He's just acting uh, like it's, uh, he's just not acting in accordance with it. He's a, what was the word? A hypocrite. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. It's not that he's wandered away from the gospel itself, it's that he's play-acting, he's acting like a hypocrite, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So firstly, they agree on the gospel, but secondly, how does the hypocrisy work then? It works like this. Peter, God either accepts us because of Jesus or he accepts us because we're keeping the rules. Which is it? You have to decide because you are preaching the former. But looking at your life, it's like you believe the latter. Which is it? So verse 15 We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, we know that a man isn't justified by observing the law. It's not by observing the law, did you hear that loud and clear? But by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. You're saying, Peter, God accepts us based on faith in Jesus. You're living like we're only acceptable if we do what's right. You're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, Peter. And here's the thing. Don't think that won't rattle people's faith. Peter, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't think that your behaviour won't rattle people's faith. On the one hand, there are Gentiles who are thinking, they are scratching their heads and they are thinking, well, am I okay with God or not? He says that I'm okay, but look at what he's doing. He won't even share the Lord's Supper with us anymore. And on the other hand, there are the Jews who are wondering, am I supposed to keep the law of God now or not? I look at Peter and he's keeping some of it, but he's not keeping all of it. So do I have to circumcise my son to be, for him to be okay with God? What about the Sabbath? What about the temple sacrifices? What do I have to do now? I'm confused. Don't think this won't rattle people's faith. I guess I better do it all. Better safe than sorry. Do you live like that when it comes to the law of God? I guess I'd better do it all. Better safe than sorry. Brothers and sisters, what does this whole Jew-Gentile law-faith business got to do with 21st century Christians today? I think the first and most obvious thing to say is this. I want you to know that you live not under the Old Testament law but you live in and for Christ, brothers and sisters. You live not under the Ten Commandments, but you live for Christ. You live not as outsiders to God's historic people. You are insiders with God. Why? Because you are in and you live for Christ. And that is regardless of how you feel amongst other Christians or whether you feel that you're a good fit for church, if you are in Christ, you are in with God. If you are in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you are justified, accepted, righteous in God's sight. Absolutely. The spiritual reality is this, regardless of your moral track record, regardless of your law keeping, regardless of your history, regardless of your baggage, if you have faith in Christ, you're accepted by God. Verse 20, can you say this? I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The law doesn't come into it. Do you see that? The law doesn't come into it. The law has nothing to do with it. The law cannot make you more acceptable to God because Jesus makes you acceptable to God. The Old Testament mosaic, uh, yes, God given for a time, for a particular place, but not for us. The law is not your master. Christ is your master and you are saved by faith in Christ alone. But second, okay, that's first and it does have to be said. Second, what if in this story we're more like Peter? What if we're not the rattled Gentile or the rattled uh, Jew who's looking on, but what if we're more like Peter? What I mean is, could it be that while we say, yes, yes, Justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Yes, yes, that's the way that you're acceptable to God. Could it be that we act not that way? 
What if we're a bit more like Peter in all of this? And I find this really difficult to probe, actually, because the thing is that every church community, every group of Christians has their different ways of doing things. We have these things that are our identity, that form kind of who we are. It's the kind of church that we are. Yes, but when do they become things that would exclude others, that would cause others to reevaluate? Am I right with God or not? Do I have to live this way and do these things or is that just cultural? It's, it's quite difficult to probe and it's been messing with me a little bit as I've been uh, looking at this passage. So just think about the distinctives of our congregation or of parts of our congregation and, and try and think it through with me. So could it be that our middle class ways or our frugal ways or our arty ways for some of us or our fussy ways for some of us or our we've got it together ways whether it's mental health or marriages or desires or employment or finances. You see, none of those things make us acceptable to God, do they? And would someone who hasn't got those things together, whatever that looks like, would they get the message if they came in amongst us, I guess I'm not acceptable to God. See, you're either acceptable to God entirely on the basis of faith in Christ or there's some other basis. What is the message that we're sending? Our middle class ways, frugal ways, arty ways, fussy ways, got it together or not. Perhaps we're people who pay for quality but we never drive a sports car. You know, we're emotionally restrained so don't raise your hands while we're singing. We only drink real coffee. This one's close to home for me. Or we're perfectly happy with an instant, thanks very much, and so should you be. We watch this kind of film, but we'd never watch that kind. We only buy fair trade and we feel it's a moral burden that everyone should, or we're perfectly happy with whatever. Stop fussing about it. We only ever vote Labor, or we only ever vote Liberal, or we only ever vote Green, or we only ever vote Independent because we couldn't bear to give our vote to any of those parties, or we have a conscientious objection to voting altogether, thanks very much, and so should you. We think the Christians should champion women's rights, or we think the Christians should champion the environment. Some of us on a Sunday as very special indeed. Others of us uh, on each day the same. Some of us see a great significance in the nation of Israel. Others of us uh, don't get so, uh, think that that's overplayed. Some of us believe that we should be looking for signs and indications in history of an imminent return of Jesus. Others of us not so much. Some of us couldn't imagine sending our kids to other than Christian schools. Others of us have voted with our feet and we're perfectly happy for our family, thanks very much, to send them to the public schools. Some of us give our kids free reign on the games that they play. Others of us set pretty strict limits. What I'm saying is none of us feels the weight of the Jewish law like in this context with Paul and Peter per se. We're not blocking people from the Lord's Supper because uh, they didn't keep the, the Sabbath commandment as it was in the Old Testament. And yet, some of these topics, you see, some of these topics, we find it hard to be close to people who are quite different from us. Even though we'd say, yes, you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. These barriers, we find it hard to be close to people who are quite different from us on some of the above. And, and we, we wouldn't want anyone to know what we think about some of these areas. We kind of squirm a little bit uncomfortably in our seat as they come up. 
Folks, can we hold those things above? Can we hold them loosely enough that a person in our midst wouldn't feel that they need to hide? Wouldn't feel second class? Might even feel like this is their church because they have their faith in Jesus. And we each belong to him. As I said, I think it's, it's a tricky area to probe because so much of it is just, you know, it's, it's the culture of any group. It's difficult to probe where it becomes this uh, matter of exclusion. But I think it's a, a mat- a, an area worth us thinking about. Let's conclude. Conflict. Where it stirs up Christians to reevaluate what really matters, that can be a helpful conflict. Not only that, Far from discrediting the gospel, it can clarify it. It can show that it's real. It can show what is important in our lives. It can show that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. I'll conclude with this. Oh, no. Groan to myself. As I remembered last week's adult Sunday school class, Pastor Woods and Kent, one of our elders, had gotten into this intense debate. They had resorted to sarcasm, which left the class sitting in an awkward silence. Apparently, Pastor Woods had stewed over it all week and now he was going to admonish Kent in front of the whole church. But that was not what my pastor had in mind. When Kent joined him at the pulpit, Pastor Woods said, as most of you know, Kent and I had an argument during Sunday school last week. Our emotions got out of hand and we spoke to each other in a sinful way. My stomach sank. Of all the days to bring someone to church, I thought, why did I pick this one? I was sure that this event would scare Cindy away. Pastor Woods put his arm around Kent's shoulder and he went on. We want you to know that we met that same afternoon to resolve our differences. By God's grace, we came to understand each other better and we are fully reconciled. But we need to tell you how sorry we are for disrupting the unity of this fellowship We both ask for your forgiveness for the poor example we set last week. Many eyes were filled with tears as Pastor Woods and Kent took turns praying. The rest of the service was a blur and before long I was driving Cindy home. I made light conversation for a few minutes, but eventually Cindy brought up what had happened. Still can't believe what your pastor did this morning, she said. I tried to steer the conversation to a safer subject, but her mind was fixed on what she'd witnessed. You know, I've never met a minister like yours. I have a hard time controlling my tongue too, but I've never been able to admit it like he did. She paused for a moment, deep in thought, and then she turned to me and asked, could I come to your church next week? With surprise and delight, I agreed to pick her up next Sunday. Cindy returned three weeks in a row, eagerly listening to our pastor explain our common struggle with sin and the solution that only Jesus can give. His example that first Sunday gave his message great credibility. By the third Sunday, Cindy had seen and heard enough. On a bright spring morning, she believed the good news about Jesus Christ and put her trust in him as her saviour, lord and king. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we sure know in our experience that our conduct contradicts our convictions often enough, too often. But Father, rarely do we stop to think of the effect that that has on the people around us and on their grasp of the gospel. Lord God, would you please, for their sake, 
be at work in our lives to conform us to the pattern of Christ's righteousness. We want to live the gospel just as we believe it and we pray for your help in that. Father, forgive us please for the times this week where our conduct has confused and muddied core gospel issues for the people around us. Lord God, it happens in our homes, it happens in our workplaces, it happens in our backyards with our neighbours over the fence. Lord God, would you please give us an integrity to think through how we need to act to be in line with the gospel and to live it out. Father, we do ask for an extra special enabling. May we be a community of people, a whole community of people that welcomes new people in amongst us so generously, with real warmth, that makes Jesus the big thing and faith in him so clearly the criterion for acceptance before you and not all these other things. Father, give us a real wisdom to be able to see where we're putting stumbling blocks in the way of people coming to Christ and we pray by the power of your spirit, may we do differently, may we do better. Lord God, we ask it for the sake of the lost, but we ask it especially for the glory of Jesus in and through us. Amen.